Welcome back along to this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Before we dive into the show, let me remind you that if you'd like to become a sponsor of the Freed Thinker, please visit our Patreon page or click on the Podbean sponsor link in the blog and follow the instructions there. A donation of any amount would be greatly appreciated. For those who cannot afford to donate but would love uh, to hear some more content, please head over to iTunes and review the show there. Remember, the Free Thinker podcast is just one of the shows that you can find also on the Christus Victor Network. So if you like the content and quality of this show, why not head over to the Christus Victor Network and see what else is on offer. On this episode of the show, we are joined by my good friend Nicholas Brzezzi. Now, Nicholas is a scientist, a mathematician, and a Reformed Christian who, after his graduate work, has turned his attention to his Master's of Theological Studies. For those of you that have been listening to us for a while, you've probably heard us talk with Nicholas before. He is also the host of a new podcast on the Christus Victor Network uh, called Theosophy Pod. Enjoy the show. So, Nicholas, thanks for coming. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Tyler. Oh, not a problem. So, a lot of my listeners will um, know you from previous episodes and uh, previous projects that we've done together and uh, commenting in the group page, Um, but I want to let everyone know that you have your own project uh, that you're working on now. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what, what your show is now? Right, so um, Theosophy Pod is a podcast that uh, takes biblical and theological questions, and I basically go through the list and answer them. So um, that is very similar to the format I had when I uh, before I took a break from podcasting. Um, I do have a lot of residual questions uh, that I'm still trying to get through. Um, but I've added uh, theological questions. So previously, I used to try to keep it mostly as a historical podcast. It's sometimes a bit difficult uh, when it comes to the Bible, right? <laughs> because it's chock full of theology. But um, when it comes to uh, that podcast, I did try to to uh, um, weed out uh, purely theological questions. Um, and keep uh, keep it more literary and, and uh, historical. But I don't really feel a need to do that now. Um, 
And so what we do is is we take uh, questions from the public about anything biblical, theological. Um, and, of course, you know, with this uh, kind of format, we're always going to be dealing with uh, exegesis and hermeneutics. So um, that's essentially what the podcast is about, interpreting the Bible. Awesome. And... Um for, for those of you um, who are listening to the show and remember, uh, maybe you remember Nicholas's voice, but you don't, um, you don't remember directly where it's from, uh, it, it might throw all the way back to a previous show called The Skeptic's Testament. And you might remember that at that time, uh, and, and, and quite a few of my earlier engagements, um, you, uh, you might remember that Nicholas was not a Christian. So it might be surprising to hear um, the new podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, kind of the transition you've had in your life and your worldview that brings you up to this point? So I think that um, perhaps the best place to start is with how my methodological naturalism and scientism unraveled. By the way, you've got to forgive me, I'm uh, battling a uh, wisdom toothache of some description, so uh, I don't know if I'm going to blunder any words or butcher the English language, <laughs> but cut me some slack. <laughs> that, that's all right, we'll just, we'll just chalk it up to maybe a, a bottle of Jameson or something like that. Yep, sure. <laughs> <laughs> So uh I look I, I at that point I sat comfortably uh defending methodological naturalism for some time I I guess inevitably my philosophical naivety was going to make it hard to defend um and and when I think back I I always go back to one thing that sort of kicked it all off in a sense and it was perhaps uh, the difference between ontology and epistemology. I'm sure you remember this being a, a big source of disagreement for us when we first began chatting whew, all those years ago now. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, and that distinction was was really what began to fray the edges of my blanket of naturalism, I suppose. So it meant that I couldn't use things like empathy to explain uh, the existence of moral facts. You, you still hear that argument a lot today, right? I see somebody put that argument to you every second day. Why is rape wrong? Well, because we evolved empathy, and through empathy, I can tell being raped is a bad thing, right? But this conflates the existence of moral facts with how we know what moral facts are, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the difference between how um, we we you know might have or might have not, or however um, we we can perceive a fact and the the foundation for that fact in and of itself. So it was really trying to account for the foundation of uh, moral facts in and of themselves that really became a serious problem for me as I began to explore my beliefs and the reason why I had them. So I think that what was most interesting for me um, at the start of this was that the objections that I was coming across uh, to especially methodological naturalism, was, were not particularly Christian objections, right? Um, they came from atheists who recognized their lack of justifications or uh, serious inherent problems with an atheistic worldview. 
Um, I guess a good example of this would uh, um, be from a book that you and I, I think we both adore, <laughs> and it came from eminent atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel, Mind and Cosmos. Yeah, that's a, I mean, just a superb uh, book, just for just we, for the the brutal honesty that uh, he has yeah. on his own worldview. Yeah, we we talk about it uh, regularly, but um, it is a good piece of work on the problem of consciousness. Now, uh, Nagel argues that consciousness is something that biology as a physical science has failed to explain, um, and those aspects of our physical constitution that bring with them the mental cannot be fully explained by physical science either. Um, If I remember him word for word, he says that conscious subjects and their mental lives are inescapable parts of reality, not describable by the physical sciences. So if he's correct, then evolutionary biology as a purely physical theory, and it is taken to be a purely physical theory, theory, cannot account for the appearance of consciousness and other phenomena that are not uh, physically reducible. And um, if mind then is a product of biological evolution, if organisms that uh, bring with them mental life are not, you know, miraculous anomalies, but integral and, and inherent to nature, then biology cannot be a purely physical science and you know that really when i was uh, um beginning this journey was sort of mind-blowing you know i guess that's a term that's overused these days but it sort of was um that a biology cannot be a purely physical science was something that i hadn't even considered um but you know he's nagel goes into making a case for the need of a, another scientific re- revolution um and you know i might say that i do every time this comes up is that this is the world view of of the last 45 years of his life trying to build a consistent atheistic worldview it's not a recent whim right uh, it's very solidly grounded in science and philosophy. Um, recently, you had on uh, Graham Oppie. Um, yep. D- yeah. Definitely one of Australia's most important contributors to ontology, but perhaps even the modern world's most important. And he touched on answering Nagel's charges against physicalism, right? But I, I guess what I, I found unsatisfactory was that he he answered it that the charges through a purely physical interpretation. Uh, he, he says he's an old-fashioned identity theorist and that it's a mistake at all to talk about minds, right? Um, and uh, he says that his version doesn't reject any of the facts, but I don't know if it's just me, but it, it seems to me that as a problem becomes, as it becomes better explained by theism, Professional atheists do send tend to to be that sort of one trick pony. Just then, deny the problem exists. Right? Uh, I don't know if that's just me. Do you do you experience that too? Yeah, a little bit. Especially, um, I mean, it's especially in the in the in the issue of uh, morality, where um, lately I've noticed. Uh, you know, at, at least there's a level of consistency, but it's it's. Um, I think there's a realization where they can't ground objective morality on their worldview, 
Um, but at that point, rather than admitting a problem with the worldview and, and mm. seeing um, and, and admitting what we what we blatantly observe in the natural world, um, they'll deny um, what we what we clearly observe. So they'll, they'll basically accept um, they'll accept nihilism. Uh, it, it comes across uh, if anyone's listened to um, Unbelievable. Um, and they and he, they always have on uh, Peter Atkins, uh, and listening to He's Peter Atkins, frustrating to listen to. It, he really is. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just it, he he just so misunderstands the theistic position, mm. um, and and he's and he and and basically um, rather than engaging and showing what he why something's wrong or why he disagrees with it, he just calls the opposing position lazy. Yeah. Um. Which which is which is really. Um, kind of bizarre because not only does the theistic position have good good reasons and good arguments for what it's saying, but there's almost a kind of irony where his position is lazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, his his position that, that basically says, um, uh, "Look, we we don't know what it is, so it has to be something natural." It, it's it, he's he's trying to uh, he's trying to knock down or. or or argue against, or really rail against um, uh, God of the Gaps, um, mm. which isn't nobody, a theistic position. Nobody yeah, argues nobody that way. Nobody is making those those arguments anymore. Right? Right, nobody does. But then he makes basically a naturalism of the gaps argument, where mm. he just assumes the, the the truth of his position and moves from there. It's it, it you know, I, I I would never call him lazy. But if if anyone from those discussions is lazy, it's not the theist. No, he he'll take that. The, the conclusion might be, you know, and uh, uh, let's say, for example, consciousness that I know that there is some work to do to go from consciousness to God as an inference to the best explanation. But that's exactly what he's ignoring. All of that work, right, that goes from consciousness to God as the inference of the ex- best explanation. And he sees God at the end and just to him ignoring all that work in, in the middle because it's a God of the gaps is is then you know he thinks he can justifiably call it uh, lazy, but he's just ignored all of the work we did. Right? Yeah, it's it's he's pretty frustrating to listen to, and and he's like you said, he's he's the one trick pony. Mm. Every time he's on unbelievable, it's the same. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, Nagel does make a tight case. There is a a problem of consciousness, and in turn, a problem for the physical sciences, and. Um, Atheist philosophers do recognize this. That's why they do. Uh, they they have found one trick that works, and I think that's why that, that they continue to do it to use that one trick. Because uh, you could take, for example, uh, Alex Rosenberg, who recognizes the problems, and it leads him, or in this case, I guess, forces him into arguing what really seem like absurdities to me that our apparent consciousness is an illusion. I think he's being consistent with a metaphysical naturalist worldview, but he's committed. He's a committed materialist, and that really becomes obvious in in how hard he works for <laughs> the absurd conclusion that he ends up drawing. Right, um, the one um, so I'm specifically talking about uh, his position that uh, material objects are not uh, about or of anything that uh, they don't have intentionality, right? So one atom never thought of or about another atom. And so since our consciousness is the result of just the intermingling of molecules, right, atoms, um, 
that make up molecules without intentionality, then we really can't be of or about anything either. So it must be what we're experiencing must be an illusion. And I guess, you know, it's almost strangely easy to rebut who is having the illusion, right? A conscious subject. We're thinking of or about Rosenberg's argument now, aren't we? Since I bring it up. And I I do find it interesting that Rosenberg has admitted that this is the biggest problem for his naturalism and scientism. Um, uh, Particularly the intelligibility of the universe. Um, And um, one of my my, uh, favorite papers that I I like to read on this is uh, by an atheist Right. This continues that trend of atheists who find problems with their own uh, worldviews. Um, and it was by theoretical physicist and uh, Nobel Prize laureate Eugene Wigner uh, called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. So, yeah, these are the problems that um, I grappled with for years. But uh, these are the ones that I guess brought me back to, to seeing that they God, as as an inference to the best explanation, can be a rational conclusion. It isn't irrational at all. In fact, um, I do prefer it. Uh, these they they do seem more plausibly true than their negation. So, um, one of the the biggest ones for me, and and I know it was for you as well. Uh, just getting back to what what began this was uh, the moral argument for God. Um, that is. If we wanted to say that uh, raping and killing a small child was objectively wrong and not just some uh, preferential societal moray against doing this to small children, then I needed to be able to ground that objectively. And it was following from this kind of thing that I did begin to see God as an inference to the best explanation. And really, at that point, I had no choice but to return to God and, you know, as meek as possible about it all. <laughs> so, so, so why not at, at that point, I mean, I, I can play the, the, the skeptic here. Why not at that point um, just, you know, be, be content being a deist or, you know, just kind of a, a bland, uh, a bland theist. Um, why, why, you know, the God of Christianity in specific? I do think that once you lay out the arguments for the resurrection that they do hold water um if again it's not just um it's not a direct uh, argument for the resurrection but it is a uh, a more plausibly true than not when especially the minimal facts I think for me that was primarily uh, seeing that debated between especially um, uh, people like Richard Carrier uh, versus William Lane Craig. Um, uh, those debates and, and really convinced me that, that uh, the evidence for the resurrection was pretty solid and absolutely rational to believe, but even more than that, pretty solid. Um, those are certainly uh, allow us to conclude that the because of the scope uh, of the evidence uh, and uh, that those were uh, essentially able to allow us to conclude that uh, in all probability the resurrection happened. 
and of course, you can look at other uh, religions. I mean, um, Hinduism, it's not difficult to disprove needing a god for every little aspect of our lives, right? Uh, things like luck or, or uh, things like justice. Uh, then you could look at other major religion, uh, religions like Islam um, who contain historical uh, and factual uh, errors that really make it tough to believe that um, that uh, Allah, who, who I do not think is the same God at all as, as uh, the God of the Bible, um, it really makes it tough to believe that those are viable worldviews, um, especially their conception of God. Um, so, yeah, you know, I guess the, the short and long of it all is that uh, there are good arguments for Christianity. And those uh, arguments, while, you know, they're not knockdown arguments, I don't, I don't think knockdown arguments are that common at all. I think they're the rarest of rarest, rarities. But um, there are good arguments for Christianity. Uh, and so I have, you know, never been... I guess, lacking in biblical knowledge. Uh, I've studied the Bible now for 15 years, ever since I was about 15 years old. I began to take the Bible seriously as a historical document and, and work through, you know, uh, degrees exploring the Bible and its history. So I've never lacked that kind of thing. And, and of course, then you have the... Uh, um, the fine-tuning of the universe, which is not something that you could imagine a deist god really caring about, right? If a, a deist god were to set things in motion, it sort of seems to me that uh, there's no real reason why the the universe would be tuned the way that it is for this type of life. So you, you you mentioned the Bible and you you've been studying it you've been studying it as a as a historical work. What do you what do you say to the skeptic who who basically says, "Look, I mean, how can you say that it was written by a bunch of, you know, bronze age goat herders? Uh it's it's it's, you know, it's it's myth uh on on the level um of, you know, Homer's The Iliad. Uh, it's, it's borrowed myth from the Enuma Elish. Like what, you know, you you keep you, you use the word history, but um Really, I mean, why why should I read it any different than any other myth? You could take the the Bible as a purely uh, um, historical text without you know reading any um, a supernatural uh, uh, without having a supernatural bent on it. But I think what I began to find, and I think what you will find if you do do that, is that you you do then have to account for some facts. Um, I, I, t I spoke about just earlier the uh, minimal facts of the resurrection, that uh, Jesus died by crucifixion, that um, the, the tomb was empty, that um, the, the uh, post-resurrection appearances, um, and that he was buried, uh, sorry, just before that, he was buried bef uh, by Joseph of Arimathea. So, you'll come across this, and you are going to be forced into asking the inevitable question, right? What is the best explanation for the minimal facts? And, of course, I think it's it's a pretty solid, uh, um, and it's been well argued in the past, that um, the best explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, 
now you've got another problem on your hands because if the best explanation for the minimal facts is that Jesus rose from the dead, then how uh, uh, do you account for that in your life, right? If Jesus' resurrection is more probable than not, then the problem for me became a philosophical one. Sort of, I had to ask myself, why wouldn't you accept it, right? And I didn't see any other choice that was reasonable. And after all, right, at this point, I was able to marry an accounting of things like consciousness, the intelligibility of the universe, laws of logic, um, only after accepting Jesus' sacrifice on the cross would these things properly make sense. And and this made, for me, Christianity became escape, inescapable, right? Uh, why, you wouldn't have any other reason to deny it once you accepted that uh, there was good reason to uh, believe in the resurrection. Right. So, um, how about... Can- Sorry. Can you, sorry, can you edit that and make me sound more intelligent? <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I don't, know what, uh, I don't know what happened there, but I think the Wi-Fi card was busted um, on that computer because I'm plugged in now and there uh, seems to be a stable connection. Well, well I'll, I'll see what I can piece together for you. Yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll I feel get... like doing it all over again. Anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, so, um, now I lost my question. <laughs> Oh, my bad. <laughs> That's all right. Um, where was I going? Uh, let's. Uh, well, so I'll, I was I'll saying what, that I'll, I'll, see can, only... I'll, I'll see what I can salvage. Um, so, so that's kind of the answer. So what about? I mean, specifically, what about the 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 question? Um, about the the reliability of the text is in again you you are saying you are saying it's it's historical, right? So um, well, uh, even even if you, I mean, you can believe that some things are purely mythical in the Bible that that there's no logical connection between that and you know say another book's claims um, to to immediately be uh, disposed of without uh, considering it properly. Um, you can still consider, you know, large swaths of of the Bible um, mythical or allegory or whatever it is, whatever you you like. But the minimal facts of of the resurrection really do make it difficult to conclude that um, that uh, you know the disciples were hallucinating or uh, some such thing, um, because their their scope of of explanation is a lot wider than uh, every other uh, opposing theory of of um, you know the, the disciples stealing the body or uh, some such thing. So um, yeah, so even if you do conclude that there are other parts of the Bible that are mi- uh, mythical or that there are other parts that are um, unreliable because perhaps we don't have you know old enough uh, attestations to it um, in terms of the manuscript tradition, you still will struggle to account for the minimal facts and the resurrection. What about what about the issue? I know you wanted to talk about this. What about the issue of um, you know can we even 
Um, so, so the minimal facts you're relying on, you're relying on text telling us um, some things about Jesus and about his, his life. Um, the fact that he died on a Roman cross, that the tomb was empty, that the um, the 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 followers of Jesus had sincere belief. Right, you're you're relying on the text to tell you um, certain things about history, but but really, I mean, that's just. That's just your interpretation, right? So, so how can you, how can we how can we reliably even understand a text? Couldn't, couldn't you just read it any way you want to read it? So, yeah, this is getting at the, um, a, a, a discussion that you and I had with someone who was skeptical of the possibility of arrive, arriving at the author's intent, right, or the objective meaning of a passage. Of, of course, we laugh about it because it is a strange conversation, given that, that for the conversation to have taken place right, at all, he would have to have understood the intentions and what I was writing, yeah? Isn't it the literary version of cutting off your nose to spite your face that you're trying to do damage to my argument, but you could only do that if you objectively understood what I meant. Right? Yeah. And he, and he wants us to objectively understand what he means. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. And, and we could only have that conversation could only take place if those things were true. And this centers around uh, hermeneutics and that is the science of interpretation. You know, I'm not sure if you've gone over that in your podcast before. I'm sure it's come up, but um, it's come up, it's come up a little bit, uh, but, but um, you can, you can do lay a little bit more spade work to it. So it's, it's the science of interpretation. It is, and it does lead to objective literary knowledge. How about, how about um, uh, on there though? So I, I know some of you know not all my listeners are um, are are uh, that philosophically <clears throat> robust to understand. So you you said the science of um, interpretation. Uh, in in what way, right? Because you're we're going to have some of the scientismists um, freak out um, to, to call it to call it a science. Could could you defend that claim a little bit? Oh, so look, I would I would say that um, it is the I guess it's uh, um, the philosophy and science of interpretation. So, um, especially in when it comes to hermeneutics, uh, biblical hermeneutics, it's concerned with the philosophy interpretation of interpreting the biblical text. What role do things like um, uh, divine illumination play in in the interpretation of scripture what process can we follow to determine uh chiastic structures right and were those chiastic structures intentional uh by the author um and then uh in terms of exegesis well then you would take that chiasm and work out what the author uh draw out the meaning of it uh for the reader Right. Um, so, getting back to hermeneutics, it also would deal with principles. Yeah. What What are the 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 limits of certain principles when it comes to um, a, a study of the uh, of of the biblical texts? Like, so, hermeneutics would also um, cover things that you know. I think you and I would just be uh, largely opposed to things like eisegesis, where, you know, in opposition to exegesis, here you're reading in your own interpretation. They asked us uh, a couple of years back to to write a, um, 
an exegetical essay from a feminist's perspective. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I sort of contradiction. I sort of just said, but what do you mean, right? You, you you're going into writing uh, the the uh, this is you know I I seriously had to do this, and um, my response was I don't think it was well liked. I got a good mark for it, but it wasn't well liked because I complained in the essay that the point of an exegetical approach is to strip yourself of those slants of those biases, right? Um, you, you don't go into it with that kind of, of literary agenda. But they were asking us to do it anyway. I, I guess, you know, I was, I, I was just <laughs> dumbfounded by it. So I basically spent the whole essay explaining why that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I wrote a paper on, uh, on Jezebel uh, and engaged with basically the, the, the feminist interpretations of, of Jezebel that have come out as of late. Mm. Um, and it's it's definitely you're you're reading, you know. At that point, you're just reading into the text what you what you want to find out or what you want to draw out of it. And it, it it's it's not actually asking, you know, what does this text mean? What did the author um, intend it to say? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's inventing a meaning of its own. Right. I think what they do is is they take that it was a i guess they they're trying to marry the idea that that was a patriarchal society and uh that i guess you know i don't know if you you keep up with uh the the i guess you would call them the new feminists who even old school feminists rile against kind of uh like the correlation here is between atheists and the new atheists yeah. if you you get where i'm going yeah i i guess you know they the new f- feminists or the f- new feminism, the new wave of feminism, uh, definitely deals with or assumes that there is this, you know, uh, a gender-driven patriarchy that's out to get them. Um, so I guess they're trying to marry those two ideas when they ask us now to to then give an interpre- a feminist interpretation of a biblical text. But I just don't see the point. Uh, it, it's just like you said a contradiction <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely bizarre to go in and say you know do do an exegetical paper an exegetical i mean exegesis means to draw out the meaning of the passage mm. um but you're you know if you're if you're doing a, a, a feminist exegetical i mean you're just you're doing you're undoing what you're what you're doing with one hand with the with the other so it's just it's a right. it's bizarre Right, and that's you know that was getting back to um, uh, what we were experiencing, uh, having a chat online with this fellow who was skeptical that you can get to the objective meaning of a text, um, and you know I asked, is Superman also Clark Kent? Everyone has this kind of elementary literary knowledge. I, I can't just interpret the story as though they're two distinct characters with their own numerical identity. The authors, Jerry Siegel and uh, Joel uh, Schuster, I think, or Joe Schuster, sorry, uh, objectively intended Superman to be the secret identity of Clark Kent. That is the kind of elementary literary knowledge we all have. I think in that thread i used the example of paul's damascus conversion when uh, jesus says to him to get up and go into the city and what you'll need to do will be made known to you 
but that doesn't mean I should end this podcast now and leave for the city, right? It, obviously, it doesn't mean that. That would be a ridiculous interpretation. And I think that this is just a problem for those who don't recognize objective literary knowledge as a valid form of knowledge. I, I guess, you know, uh, we see that kind of uh, attitude mostly among the the scientismists, the those who adhere to scientism. Yeah, the example I, I normally give is is uh is if Romeo and Juliet is a comedy or not. Yeah. Yes. Um yeah. I mean you if, if if you come away reading Romeo and Juliet and you come away thinking that you read a comedy, you just haven't learned how to read. You you've actually yeah. developed some really bad uh reading Comprehension habits. Comprehension skills. Yeah, I mean it's 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 pretty rough. Um yeah. So, and and I mean, kind of circling back to the to the feminist critique, I, I, you know, there's there's a difference between, um, you know, a feminist exegetical paper and a feminist critique. Um, and, you know, you 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 might be able to do one, but you can't do the other. Uh, well, mm. you can't do it well. So, you know, if if a feminist wants to do a good exegetical paper and say this is what you know the passage, uh, this was the authorial intent, this is what the passage means, this is the context of the literature. But as a feminist, here are my critiques of it and here are my critiques of its application to current society. That's different. Uh, mm-hmm. You could still do exegesis and get to that point. Um, we can discuss you know, those, those, those later points of application almost. <clears throat> but, but to say there's, you know, there's no meaning, there's no real meaning in this text or, or, or we can't discover the authorial intent um, just seems uh, imprudent to say the least. It goes against everything we've been taught about uh, um, examining a text critically, right? You don't... Um, since exegesis is critical in nature, it does imply some scientific method. Uh, and that this is just getting back to, you know, those who might deny the scientific uh, underpinnings of exegesis. Well, you know, there are all kinds of scientific under, underpinnings, uh, but there are also logical underpinnings, yeah? It, it's the same reason why you don't call Romeo and Juliet a comedy, uh, because that doesn't make any sense. That's not the objective meaning of, of the author. So, um being critical in nature definitely implies the science, some scientific method, um, which implies some prior hermeneutic. And that is uh, uh, essentially how um, exegesis is related to hermeneutics and why hermeneutics then is uh, a science. What do you say then to the person who, who basically complains, look, if, if you know, if God really wanted to communicate to me uh, or, to, or, to, or to humanity, you know, why why would I why do I need to you know basically get a master's degree in ancient languages and ancient culture to really understand uh, understand these these passages? But see, isn't that the beauty of the text that you don't need to do that? You can. Sure, but there, that's, it, your salvation isn't dependent on uh, understanding the relationship between her- hermeneutics and exegesis, right? Your, your salvation is dependent on uh, um, understanding Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And I would say to that person, it's, you know, we, we see it all the time in the atheist community. It's the same person that asks, uh, why didn't um, God reveal calculus to Moses? Is that 
really the intent of of uh, um, what Moses wrote <laughs> that he should convey calculus to us. Uh, it just it's kind of not only anachronistic, but uh, you you do seem at that point there to just be conflating all kinds of um, uh, genre. Right, it, it the same applies to those who treat the Bible as some sort of scientific textbook, as if it's supposed to to be teaching us about the natural world. Uh, it might say some things about the natural world, but that's not you know God's uh, uh, purpose in in terms of inspiring a book for his his uh, for the salva- salvation of of mankind. Yeah, he, sorry, humankind. He, before he didn't reveal calculus, but he, he revealed that that. That bats were birds, right? Right. Isn't that uh, isn't that just the famous one <laughs> <laughs> from merits? From merits, yeah. it's so bad. Yeah. But but there's but there's, I think for me and we've talked about this before. It's 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 um, it's it's almost it's almost so tragic that it's funny um, that you have this this whole group of of you know quote unquote free thinkers and skeptics and critical thinkers and brights and. And, and people that are that are ostensibly dedicated to reason and logic and evidence, um, that almost in mass as a movement buy into this type of buy into this type of thing, um, this this really um, shallow kind of vacuous, um, oftentimes anti-intellectualism um, that basically says, look, if if I have to study any expert or any scholar or any commentary or I have to do anything with the original languages for this book that was written in a different context, different history, different time in a different language to understand what the Mm. author meant. Um, then, then, then it's, then it's stupider then it's ridiculous. I I think you recently posted something about complexity. I really liked that point about something being complex, not necessarily, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't remember it exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, it was a little. It was a little comic on. Um, it was. It was Occam trying to choose uh, his his razors. Uh, you know, it's was, it was supposed to be funny. Um, Occam's choosing his razors, but but you know, I, I pointed out that you know complexity isn't always a bad thing. I mean, for anyone who's ever who's ever tried, you know, a two blade, uh, you know, the throwaway disposable Bic razors, or if they've they've compared to like the the five blade Mach five and how good of a shave it is. I mean, mm. complexity isn't always a bad thing. No, that's right. Um, and I just getting back to what you were saying about uh, the, uh, uh, I guess the, the inherent. Uh, um, contradiction of of calling yourself a bright a free thinker and and then presenting the kinds of arguments that they do um i'm i'll never ever ever forget how stunned i was uh between when i heard uh, the debate between kraus and william lane craig where uh kraus made the most horrendous attack on uh, syllogisms and using deductive logic right uh do you remember this oh it was so bad so so So, bad yeah, it was such an absurd attack on logic. He should really be ashamed of himself. The, so the error was in the syllogism, for anyone who doesn't remember, um, was that uh, it was an equivocation. He was using the word mammal differently in each premise. I think premise one was something like all mammals exhibit homosexual behavior. 
Um, and that premise too was that William Lane Craig is a mammal and we're supposed to conclude uh, in, in the conclusion that therefore William Lane Craig is uh, exhibits homosexual behavior, right? Um, well, that only rests on an error in logic. <laughs> right. That the reason why we know that that's bad logic is because there's an we know the error that he's making that uh, he's he's equivocating mammal in premise one it's all of uh, the mammals and in premise two it's just an individual mammal right they're not necessarily representative of each other so um, he's no longer talking about all species of mammals and so he's equivocating it's an error in thought it's just so absurd. Yeah, it, it's just it's just you know you have this whole group that's dedicated to you know reason and logic, except in order to maintain consistency on their view, so often they have to deny reason and logic. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many conversations because I'm I'm a I'm a presuppositionalist. I'm not going to go into depth on what that is here, um, but there are so many times where I've been in conversations with people where they basically will deny that the laws of logic. Um, are authoritative or, or universal and, and they'll they'll start saying that they're you know they're they're conventional and we just we invent them for what works and, and all this kind of stuff and it just comes down to the point where okay then we can invent a different convention uh, we can we can invent a, con- a convention where um, where when we're talking about supernatural things contradictions are valid so even if you could prove a contradiction in the essence of God which they never have but even if you could uh, then that means that God exists uh, why why should we stick with one convention over another and they're just going to have to fall back on, well, it's whatever's useful. Well, useful for what? I mean, I can think of all kinds of things that God is useful for. Uh, and so therefore, does that make it true? I mean, this is this is just the types of things that they have to go to to defend their positions. I mean, it, which, which, by the way, you know, it, it, it really encourages me because the more I do this, the more I see that to be an atheist, you have to, you have to deny the existence of laws of logic. You have to deny, you know, the, the existence of mind. You have to deny that, you know, mm-hmm. raping and, and molesting a small child is actually wrong. Mm-hmm. You have to deny that there's any actual meaning uh, or purpose uh, of any kind. I mean, you have to, the, the things you have to deny, and, and, and I always, I always wonder, if, you know, at, at what point do they just stop and look around and say, how in the world did I get here? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. my, my worldview led me here. I, you know, I turned off the wrong street somewhere. <laughs> I got to yeah. I got to get back on course. It's one giant exercise in admitting your own reduction <laughs> at absurdums, right? Oh, yeah. Those people. Those people who uh, deny the the fundamental uh, laws of logic, I ask them this same question. You've probably seen me ask it before. Do you think that an isolated society would arise somewhere else and discover the piano axioms, or the pino axioms, depends where you come from, um, that... Uh, they represent or they describe uh, the set of axioms for natural numbers. Um, Do you think another society will arise that will develop uh, um, contradictory axioms that, you know, are in contradiction to the piano axioms? It really seems absurd that that would happen, right? Because the 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 natural numbers are the natural numbers. It doesn't matter if you're from uh, Iran or if you're from Australia or or the US. You still have um, the positive integers one, two, three, and it 
just seems to be an inherent part of nature. But that is something that cries out for an explanation, that that, that would be uh, um, uh, an axiomatic uh, law, right? Right. But but this is but this is the group that when Krauss made that argument just you know stood up and cheered. Yeah, they really did. That was uh, I don't know what floored me uh, more was that uh, people thought that that was a good uh, a, a good attack on on uh, deductive logic or that he thought it was a good argument to bring up in front of a crowd of people. I don't know. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty pretty embarrassing. Um, all around, yeah. I, I, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just always surprised. Uh, although, again, like I said, it's, you know, it's encouraging that this is, uh, this is, this is the end of atheism. I mean, this is, uh, and I don't mean end as in that, like it's coming to a close. I mean, this is, this is mm. the logical ends. This is the, this is the telos um, of atheism. That's what, that's intellectually what it, what it leads to um, for those who want to be. Uh, those who want to be consistent, um, and, and that's and that's encouraging me that that you know when, whenever someone gets to the point where they they deny the laws of logic or they deny basic morality or they deny uh, that we can know anything, um, and, you know, and they somehow know that we can't know anything, and you, there's there's all these types of all these types of issues. Uh, it's encouraging that that's you know once they've gotten there, really my job as an apologist is done. Uh, I mean, if, if, if you're, if you're at the point where you have to affirm such ridiculous positions to make your presuppositions, to make your starting point consistent, um, I mean, more power to you. Good luck. I mean, good luck with that. I, I, I'm not sure what else there is to say at that point to them. Hmm. I'm, I'd absolutely agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's an interesting time to, to be, uh, in these dialogues, I think. you know what's been difficult for me to try to um, work out is is how prevalent this kind of thing is. It seems on the face of it, if, if we were just looking uh, prima facie at the problem, that it is rampant, that the, the minority are the atheists who are, you know, rigorous, proper, uh, respectable thinkers like Oppie and Roos who, you know... Um, have made big impacts in their uh, discerning fields, but who have not really made many inroads when it comes to their own communities. It it seems like uh, most of of the atheists I deal with um, are more uh, into Krauss and Dawkins and, and, uh, you know, the Ditchens type, as you describe them. That I'm not sure though how representative that is of of the whole community. I mean, you you and I have found, I guess, what what we would call uh, pearls, um, people who are you know respectable, rigorous thinkers um, out there mingling uh, on 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 the forums, but they don't seem to be that uh, uh, popular. They don't seem to be that prevalent. Yeah, they're they're not that prevalent. I mean, it could be it could be a, it could be a function of of you know who's just interested in having these debates and these di- dialogues in public. Um, mm. Although at the same time, the the movement in mass seemed to be marked by these, but the, like these are the these are the thought leaders um, mm. for them. So you you don't have. Um, 
you don't have major there's there's no like sub movements within atheism like there are in Christianity. Um, this this does seem to be the movement at the time. Um, and, and and what I what I always find so surprising um, is that even even the people even the even those pearls even the ones that I find um, that are positive overall when when you scratch beneath the surface even a couple of inches um they you know they have if they don't fully endorse they have they have really strong sympathies um for the work of people like richard dawkins um uh, for for even the work of people like richard carrier and the mythicist mm-hmm. i mean so even if even if they don't affirm it even if i'm not going to say okay you're 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 talking out of your neck um they they will endorse it they they will they will have these people come to their conventions to their groups to speak they'll recommend their their, their books they'll, they'll do all this kind of stuff where whereas you you know for me and and for a lot of people i know i'm i'm not going to recommend answers in genesis and ken ham mm-hmm. i'm sure he's a very nice guy and i'm not saying you know he's not a he's not a christian or anything like that but i'm not going to recommend his resources mm-hmm. um and i find a lot of christians that are that way but I don't really find that in the atheist movement at all. I don't know if you've if you've kind of experienced that. Yeah, precisely what you're describing is what I've experienced. That there's not, you know, I guess it, it, again the reason why I, I do find it difficult to work out is because it could just be a function of who we decide to surround ourselves by. Also, those forums, uh, I guess. Um, uh, Facebook and where we post our podcasts—they have you know pretty sensitive algorithms that that uh, will surround you by similar-minded people if that's what you so choose. Uh, they'll work it out for you, um, and so I guess it could just be a function of that. But you know, at the same time, we're always looking for new people to debate out there, aren't we? And we rarely find those. Uh, what I think what you've mostly found recently is that even those who are genuine, even those who uh, you know you might describe as a rigorous thinker, um, you know, not, that's not to say that that uh, I am, but those who we might say, look, this is an atheist, but he is a, a very good thinker. You just, you say, you do what you do, which is scratch beneath the surface. And it seems to me what you're finding more and more, uh, what I'm witnessing is that uh, they're just nihilists in denial. It's really a strange thing that when when you, you show them the logical conclusion of their position, no, I'm not a nihilist. <laughs> But that's you can't hold those beliefs and then not be a nihilist. <laughs> that's what that's sometimes what I actually say to them. Right. Really, really objectively, morally indignant nihilists at the same yes, time. That as is, well, right? I mean, I mean the one, the ones who will who will so clearly affirm nihilism, whether they whether they agree with it or not, will yep. be the ones that are often the most indignant about uh, you know God's actions in the Bible or or, or something. Uh, like that, these are the people who who would who would defend uh, almost almost you know vigorously defend um, the the subjectivity, um, the the relativity, uh, 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 and the, and the human invention of moral values and duties. You know, we we shouldn't judge uh, the you know these people of other nations of other uh, other times, but when it comes to God of the Bible, um, really uh, that that was really really you know objectively evil. 
but it, right. you know, it, it's just it's it's internally completely inconsistent. Right. This is where moral relativism leads. It's it is absurd. <laughs> All right. Well, with with that, um, let let's go ahead and, and uh, come to a close. Thank you so much for coming sure. on, um, Nicholas. Where, how else? How can people find you and get in contact with you and follow your work? Well, firstly, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Uh, they can find me on. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, sometimes I I don't. I wonder whether or not I should uh, start a new Facebook page because I just kind of uh, commandeer yours to post my podcast. But they'll find me on your page. Uh, they'll. They can email any biblical or theological questions to theosophypod at gmail.com. Uh, I am on iTunes, and uh, those who have um, left me uh, positive reviews, I appreciate that. Uh, and I have recently joined uh, the Christus Victor Network. Yeah, you're on the network with, uh, with Owen and myself now. Yes, that's right. Welcome, I'm looking forward to... Thank you. I'm looking forward to collaborating uh, with uh, you two. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you again for joining us. Uh, always good to, to have you on. For those of you who haven't listened to Theosophy Pod yet, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, to, you know, we're only what three three episodes deep so far. Um, four, 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 four episodes. <laughs> uh, but they're they're really fantastic. They're definitely worth your time. Um, check those out, Nicholas. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Take care. Good night and God bless. Thank you again for joining us. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or stop by the Freethinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Also, before we go today, I want to make a plug for an upcoming conference put on by our friends over at Striving for Eternity. Good night and God bless. Mark your calendar. Jersey Fire is July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. The topic, the Word of God. The speakers, Matt Slick from Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Justin Peters from Justin Peters Ministry, and Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity. Jersey Fire will equip you to talk to the lost and then put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. Jersey Fire, July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. For details, go to jerseyfire.org.